Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We are coming at you from Rulu University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we once again continue on our Hemonk Emergencies series. This is the second installment of our Heme Emergencies portion of our Hemonk Emergencies. And so, again, I thought last time it was a great discussion about ITP. Today, we talk about another scary but very important diagnosis to make that is DIC. Yeah, and this is a really good one because we talk about schistocytes, and Dan's favorite thing in the world is looking at blood smears because he's Dan Housewrath, and that's what he does. <laughs> that's uh, what but, I do. <laughs> but, you know, the good thing is, you know, this, this is really a perfect discussion on that differential diagnosis. And I know we've talked about schistocytes quite a bit on our show to date, and so it'll be nice to kind of have an episode where we kind of highlight why schistocytes are clinically significant, and we will definitely include a picture from the ash image bank uh, in our show notes just for you all to take a look at for that extra visual component to our show so listeners we don't want to keep you waiting let's go ahead and jump right into an episode on dic hey everybody how's it going i'm doing good you guys uh you guys watching your your weather radar i uh i understand we're we're supposed to have some fairly severe storms coming through uh university area here you know, I've I didn't grow up in a place where things like tornadoes and such are really a thing. And in my head, I still picture the Wizard of Oz every time I see a, a tornado warning. I you know, picturing like a witch and some cows and things just be swirling over my head. Uh, thankfully, I haven't seen that yet, but maybe tonight will be the night. Unclear. Maybe it could yeah, be. Yeah, it was a little disappointing to be honest. It's not like a beautiful little you know spiral that comes down from the sky they're significantly more apocalyptic and and darker but you know you do what you can in case this recording cuts out in the middle y'all know what happened we we all got blown away but hopefully not yep and we know though just to tap your shoes twice at the heel and you'll go back home yeah that's That's right it's a golden rule it's a golden (laughs) Golden rule (laughs) man i'll bet uh I, i wish we could say the same for for the case i'm about to tell you guys about i was uh i was on consoles the other night or on call the other night and I got consulted on a, a gentleman who is, I think, pretty sick, at least from from how it was described to me on the on the phone. He um, is a six year old guy. Uh, he had a pretty basic past medical history, a little hypertension, a little diabetes, uh, and he came in with fever and some diarrhea. He thinks he might have eaten some questionable beef, uh, like a, a hamburger that was pretty red inside, and he just like you know got it off a off a street vendor. Uh, no shade to street vendors; they're usually delicious, but hey. Um, this guy seemed, seemed to think that might have been what did it. And uh, he came in a little bit altered to the ED with some abnormal vitals. He was febrile. He got a temperature up to 102 with a heart rate to match 115. BP was soft, 70 over 50, and ultimately got triaged in the MICU, needing some pressors to, to keep his pressures and his maps up to goal. Sent off a CBC on a mission and came back uh, with leukocytosis to 18,000, predominantly neutrophils. Hemoglobin was down to 7.8 with a fairly normal baseline. He had seen his primary care doc a, a couple months ago, and it was, you know, in the in the mid-14s. And his platelet count came back at 20 uh, from also a previously normal baseline. CMP, 
Uh, came back, he had a, an AKI. His creatinine was up to 2.8. His baseline's not perfect. You know, he had a baseline of 1.7, but that's still significantly higher than that. And his total bilirubin was elevated too, uh, 1.8. They didn't uh, have fractionated bilirubin, so we don't know what the components of that were, but that was that was abnormal. So anything else you guys would want off the bat when, you, when you're hearing about a case like this? I would definitely want some coags. Uh, again, it's those spidey senses of thermocytopenia and scary stuff are going off. Yeah, I, I fully, fully agree with you. If you have a, a critically ill patient, a patient in the, the in MICU who has uh, got this low of a platelet count, you need to know what their coags are. And I know we talked a little bit about uh, about what we might be discussing today, as we usually do in our intros. But what is it you're worried about when you're when you're thinking about sending off coags? At least for me, I one of the one of the things that we had discussed previously was DIC being one of the scary differentials on our on our list of things that cause low platelets. So DIC would probably be at the top of that differential for me. Unfortunately for him, DIC isn't the only thing that's going to be on our differential. So so what else do you guys think about when you see a patient like this? Yeah, I think you know the big thing with this guy is that he has a platelet count of 20, so very low platelets. And we talked about the broad differential of thrombocytopenia in a prior episode. And the last episode, we said, hey, what if the platelet count is less than five? What are we looking for? Now we're in this interesting range of a platelet count of 20. We're still in that danger territory that we had described before of, hey, we need to prioritize this on our differential. And with this guy, of somebody who's coming in sick with fever, AKI, He's got a drop in his hemoglobin. We don't know what his baseline is, but that seems like a low hemoglobin for somebody without much of more of a past medical history. It makes me worried that we have an anemia and a thrombocytopenia. I always have to rule out something like a TTP or an HUS. And, and what those mean, TTP and is thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. HUS is hemolytic uremic syndrome. And those are diseases where essentially you're making small little blood clots in your vasculature that give you end organ damage. And the trigger to that in both of those cases, one of them is an autoimmune trigger when we're thinking about TTP. When we're thinking about that hemolytic uremic syndrome, that's secondary to an infection like Shigella or Shigatoxin or something like that that we've we've learned about in medical school. So those are the things that I would really want to make sure is not going on in this patient is, is there a thrombotic microangiopathy, these diseases where you make tiny blood clots in the vasculature that cause end organ dysfunction? Sure. And, you know, this guy, they, we did ask them to send a full set of, of coags. Uh, so a PTINR, an APTT, and a fibrinogen. And so this gentleman came back with an INR of 2.5 an APTT that was elevated to 53, and a fibrinogen low at 110. And so with these coags, with the coags this abnormal, I I agree. I think that DIC is going to be at the top of our differential. So Dan, I I almost feel silly for asking you this, but I'm assuming you reviewed a smear as part of this workup then? Yes, I did. Um, You know me well. So I went ahead and every time I see, you know, low platelets and, and people are sick, the first thing I want to do is, is look at that blood under the microscope and see what we're dealing with. And so when I did look at the smear, I saw, you know, very few platelets around. I saw a lot of neutrophils looking, looking a little bit angry, had a lot of big granules in them. And when I looked at the red cells, my favorite cells, 
there were in fact some schistocytes present. So I was seeing these abnormal red blood cells that looked almost like they had been shaved off or broken up. And, and that, that kind of puts you in this whole category of thrombotic microangiopathies or diseases where there's some shear stress on the red blood cell. And uh, DIC can cause that. There weren't all that many schistocytes. You know, if, if you were going to read this out on your EHR and, and, you know, look at the smear review as it's reported out, this would probably be more in that one plus range, one plus schistocytes, one plus helmet cells, that sort of thing. And typically with some of these other microangiopathic hemolytic anemias or microangiopathic processes like atypical HUS, HUS, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, those I would expect uh, a greater number of, sh- of schistocytes to be present on the smear. So, you know, again, you can't just use that piece of data. You can't just use that abundance or lack of abundance of schistocytes to say this is or isn't TTP. There are a lot of other sort of more detailed tests you have to send. But it definitely was pushing me more towards the DIC realm. That was even before we got the COAGs back to help support that. And one thing I really want our listeners to understand, because it took me the longest time to understand what a thrombotic microangiopathy was and really what a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia is. And this is probably me just, again, as you all listeners know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, so it takes me a long time to learn things. But really, it did take me a very long time to understand what that meant. And really what we're talking about, again, it's actually extremely simple. You're forming small blood clots, microangiopathic in the small blood vessels, and you have a hemolytic anemia because of exactly what Dan said, you have shear stress as those red blood cells try to squeeze through that area of clot. And the red cells shear on those clots, and then you end up with a jaggedy-looking red blood cell, which sometimes we call a schistocyte, sometimes we call it a helmet cell, sometimes we call it a triangulocyte. All those are essentially synonyms for shear stress on that red blood cell. And we always want to make sure that that's the process is not going on where you're making these tiny blood clots because of the end organ dysfunction. And I think it's important to understand or, or helpful to think about microangiopathic uh, hemolytic anemias and, and thrombotic microangiopathies as a final common pathway. There's a lot of different things that can cause this process to happen in somebody's body. In HUS and atypical HUS, we think it's damage to the endothelium that causes this diffuse tiny blood clot formation. In, uh, in TTP, we know it's a reduction in enzyme called ADAMTS13, and we'll talk all about what that does in a future episode, but ultimately its deficiency leads to formation of lots of tiny little blood clots. And in DIC, we're really in a situation where the whole clotting cascade is profoundly dysregulated. And oftentimes that can be because of peripheral consumption of just lots of small clotting activity being set off by severe infection or severe illness. And in other times, it could be severe liver dysfunction. You know, the liver is responsible for making a tremendous number of our clotting proteins, both procoagulant and anticoagulant factors. And when there's severe synthetic dysfunction of the liver, the clotting system can get so grossly unbalanced that you consume your clotting factors that you do have making these tiny little thrombi all over the body. And so you get both bleeding and clotting. It's a pretty devastating situation. And, you know, one of the things in this case that you had mentioned is that we had these abnormal coag studies. So, Ronak, now that you're, you know, you're the fellow, we've gone through a lot of your first year now, you're you're almost to the end, you get this consult, what are you going to do? 
I think in this case, you need to set up some sort of timeline of, of how often to repeat these coags, especially that fibrinogen. You know, we typically, at least on consults I've learned, you want to try to keep the fibrinogen over greater than 100. And so this guy was at 110, which is just about there. So we, we you know, we need a low threshold to repeat, repeat those coags in that fibrinogen. I would say, you know, roughly every four to six hours, depending on how sick the person is, at least initially spacing it out if it seems like they're stabilizing in terms of their numbers. I'm assuming, Dan, in all of your expertise with, you know, with this and, you know, kind of being um, in fellowship for a little while, did you, I'm assuming you did this and you repeated some coags? We did, yeah. So, you know, we asked them to to cycle those, uh, at least a fiber engine level, every eight hours, just this guy was quite sick. You know, you may not need to do it that aggressively, but we um, we really wanted to, to make sure that we were managing this. And one thing I'll also mention is, you know, the INR was elevated to 2.5. And that's, that's fine to, to look at as another piece of data supporting your theory that this guy is consuming his coagulation factors. But in a, in the setting of DIC, when there are so many different factors that are getting consumed and others that are being hyperproduced as a result of inflammation, the INR is not a very good assessment of somebody's true clotting status. It was designed for the purpose of monitoring warfarin therapy. And so I wouldn't go flooding this guy with FFP to try and correct an INR because that's something you do if they're on warfarin and that's the reason their INR is elevated, right? So what we did do is we asked that they give him some cryoprecipitate to try and increase that fibrinogen level. And cryoprecipitate is sort of an odd uh, blood product. It's not something that we get directly out of a patient like plasma that we can just apherese off uh, and spin down into a separate unit. It goes through a, a little bit of extra processing where the plasma is subjected to very cold temperatures. And as a result, certain components of the plasma will drift out of solution and, um, and essentially get concentrated into this factor product called cryoprecipitate. So it's a pooled product and it does contain a great amount of fibrinogen compared to just FFP. So when somebody has low fibrinogen, instead of giving like a recombinant fibrinogen product or something like that, which we do have now, uh, oftentimes cryo is what we reach for. In a in a situation like this, Dan, you know, is there a threshold that you want to try to keep this patient in terms of their fibrinogen level? Like I said, a hun- greater than a hundred, we is often what we recommend. Is it ever appropriate to pick a higher threshold like one hundred and fifty um, in a situation like this in someone that's so ill? That is what we asked them to to target was 150 in this guy's case. I agree with you. If you just had a patient who's in front of you and they look like they're not having active bleeding or they're not really that sick, maybe they have you know diffusely metastatic cancer and they're in this sort of chronically consumptive state where they're not having severe consequences and they drift down below 90 or below 80, you want to just get them back up to 100, right? But uh, in this guy's case because he appeared to be so ill. And actually, when I when I finally got in there to examine him, he was, he was having a little bit of oozing of blood around his IV sites, um, just generally looking extremely unwell. Uh, we, we asked them to shoot for a slightly higher target. Got it. And, and in contrast to our prior case where, you know, an ITP, where giving platelet transfusions, for instance, maybe diagnostic, but not necessarily therapeutic in these situations because the platelets are quickly consumed, it, are platelet transfusions okay to do in a situation like this with DIC? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the difference between DIC and many of the other 
disorders when we think of that in these hematologic thrombocytopenia emergencies, it's a consumptive process and you just got to replace what's missing. So you're replacing that fibrinogen. As Dan said beautifully, it's dysregulated coagulation. So don't trust that INR just flood with FFP. You're going to make that patient possibly volume overloaded, give them taco for no reason. You know, there, there it's, you don't always have to give FFP if the INR is elevated. Some of the things you can do is just give them something like vitamin K. We know that vitamin K helps you make some of these clotting factors. So that's something that's easy that you can give somebody if they're in DIC just to kind of help them replace their clotting factors because they're consuming them. You just want to give them back. So this is a replacement issue. So replace their fibrinogen with cryoprecipitate and replace their platelets uh, if they're thrombocytopenic and especially if they're bleeding. Now, guys, while we're on this topic, Dan had mentioned something about how DIC can also affect liver function and also that, you know, a lot of the factors are made in the liver. And as you all know, unfortunately, we tend to see some pretty sick patients that have underlying cirrhosis. And so I was wondering if you have any thoughts about how cirrhosis fits into this. How can you distinguish, you know, when factors are low and you have these abnormal values, these these coagulation factors from liver disease as opposed to liver injury related to someone that's as sick as this person? You know, it's really tough. Liver failure, be it acute or chronic, is uh, just a, it makes for a very difficult diagnostic dilemma when you're trying to figure out if somebody's hemolyzing, if somebody's got uh, consumptive coagulopathy. That's just because if the liver isn't doing its part to try and replace these factors as they're getting degraded. You don't know if they're low simply because the liver's not making them or if they're low because they're getting consumed faster than they can be produced. One thing that comes up a lot of the time is uh, if we're trying to evaluate for hemolysis, and that can be a part of your evaluation for DIC or a part of your evaluation for TTP, whatever else, haptoglobin, which is one of our sort of favorite go-to factors to look for a very sensitive marker of hemolysis, that's produced in the liver. Uh, so that's going to be low pretty much always when somebody's got severe liver injury or liver failure. Uh, and LDH is produced abundantly in hepatocytes. So if there's liver injury and liver inflammation, the LDH is going to be grossly elevated as well. And so it can just be, it can be tough. Uh, you have to just use the clinical context. You have to look at the, look at the patient in front of you and try and understand if they have good reason to have acute liver injury. Like maybe they were severely hypotensive in the ER, for example, or they have, you know, um, uh, medical history suggestive of cirrhosis, then maybe you can start thinking about that as a contributor. But um, I think most of the time, if somebody's really sick, you have to operate under the the suspicion that their liver is at normal at baseline. And one of the other important things about that is that, like Dan said, regardless of which of those scenarios you're in, you're going to want to just replace what's missing. So the bottom line is with severe coagulopathy, whether it's DIC or coagulopathy of liver disease, replace what's missing, replace the fibrinogen with cryo, and also replace platelets if needed if the patient is bleeding. And and those are the two really important concepts with DIC. You're not fueling the fire with DIC by replacing those coag factors. You're actually helping that patient out. You know, one thing we didn't talk about was uh, some of the other workup that, that usually gets sent off when a patient is this sick, and especially when you're seeing schistocytes uh, in, in the peripheral blood. That's this ADAMTS-13 test. We'll get into, again, more detail in future episodes about what this is, what this enzyme actually does. 
But for now, suffice to say that it is critically low in TTP, in this very dangerous entity with a very different treatment pathway compared with DIC. But that said, it oftentimes will be abnormally low in patients that are critically ill for other reasons. And so if you don't have another good explanation for that ADAMTS-13 to be low, then you can start thinking about this potentially being TTP. But classically, we see an ADAMTS-13 in the low teens or below 10 to really hang your hat on a diagnosis of, um, of TTP. So, you know, take, take those lab values with a grain of salt and, and always use your clinical context to inform how you're going to interpret these tests. So many consults that we get that are very reasonable consults are from the from the ICU where somebody sent off the NMTS 13 and it comes back at, let's say, 18% or 20% or 25%, which is low. But when we think about TTP, like Dan said, we correlate it clinically. Typically, it's less than 10%. I mean, that's really what we're looking for. But the clinical correlation is huge. In the same way with this liver disease patient, who always has a low haptoglobin, who always has an elevated bilirubin, are they having actual signs of, of hemolysis or not? You have to look at the clinical context, correlate it with the peripheral blood smear, do all the things that we've been talking about in these last few weeks to really figure out what's going on. So a low ADAMTS-13 is very normal in a sick patient. You know, one last thing I'll mention is you know, maybe the next day after this guy has become a little bit more stable, say he's coming off pressors, his fibrinogen is, you know, you're maintaining it above that 150 threshold with cryoprecipitate support. If you if you had the luxury of, of going back and doing some tests on his native blood, his blood when he got there, if you can send off specific factor levels, if, you're, if your lab has the capacity to look at specific factor levels, factor activity levels, that is, then you can kind of make a little logic puzzle out of specific levels. And what I mean by that is there are factors that are produced in the liver. There are factors that are produced in the liver with the help of vitamin K. And there are factors that are produced in the endothelium. And so if you get a test of each one of those, you can try and narrow down what this coagulopathy really is is coming from. And so usually I'll send off a factor 8 activity level, factor 5 activity level, and a factor seven activity level. These are, you sort of each represent those categories I was talking about. Factor eight is produced in the endothelium, completely independent of liver function. Factor five is produced in a vitamin K independent manner in the liver. And factor seven needs vitamin K for its production in the liver. And so if you see a person in front of you who is coagulopathic and they have an isolated vitamin or factor seven deficiency, and you test some of those other factors as follow-up Uh, and you find that uh, some of those other vitamin K-dependent factors are low as well, you can start to think, well, maybe this is nutritional. If all of them are down, as they were in this patient's case, that really does support a diagnosis of DIC, because the only reason your factor rate should be low, along with these other coagulation factors, would be if you're consuming all of your factors. And so uh, that can be another thing that can help you out a little bit. And this is a really good plug, again, if you're getting pimped on hepatology rounds, is that they might ask you, well, which factor will be elevated in coagulopathy of liver disease? Factor eight, it will all be normal or elevated because it's produced in the endothelium, not produced by the liver. So there we go. Pimping question for hepatologists out there. Everyone should listen to, the, to this podcast, right? <laughs> That's right. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so just to get back to this case and wrap it up a little bit, you know, uh, like I mentioned, we, we recommended the uh, ICU give this gentleman some cryoprecipitate. 
His next fibrinogen came back at 127, so really didn't bump all that much. We had to give him another five units. The follow-up after that was finally above 150. It was 164. And, uh, you know, they started him on some broad-spectrum antibiotics. It turns out uh, that that poor hamburger was not to blame at all in this particular case. He was having uh, his symptoms actually related to uh, diverticulitis that had caused an intra-abdominal abscess. And that's that's what ended up making him so sick. So they narrowed his antibiotics down uh, and he got out of the ICU in a couple of days. And uh, platelet counts and coags all started to normalize once his infection got under control. And Ronak, do you want to just recap this episode? You know, let's say you have a patient who comes in with severe coagulopathy, thrombocytopenia, and you think they have DIC, what are you going to do? Repeating a CBC, repeating the citrated platelet count, getting coagulation factors, looking at a smear. These are all things that are going to be critical to kind of working that up. In a case like this, given the clinical scenario, you know, a very sick patient, the coags coming back as, you know, abnormal. These are all suggestions that perhaps this patient does have DIC. And so in a situation with DIC, um, you know, we are trying our best to replace what is missing. So, you know, if that's fibrinogen that they need, we give them fibrinogen. If they're PT and INR elevated, you know, utilizing things like vitamin K or, or in some cases, maybe some FFP um, to, to kind of support them, using platelet support, using blood support, whatever you have to kind of get them out of the situation. And then in a case like DIC, of course, there's often an underlying trigger. So identifying what that may be in this patient ended up being, you know, an infection that was the source. So getting source control, antibiotics, et cetera. But truly, I think what you guys have highlighted in this case is so critical that we need to take away from this is just replace what is missing. And that is truly the recipe for success in order to get a patient out of DIC. Oh, that was great. That was great. And and we all, you know, this, we always learn stuff from, from Dan as we go through this. And I think my big takeaway from this one from Dan was don't always trust that INR. It was designed for warfarin. It, it, you do give out and we're not saying don't give FFP if somebody's bleeding, obviously, but, sure. but, you know, in many ways that INR level is not a perfect test. And I think that's a really important takeaway. Yeah. It's not reflective of that. It's not truly reflective of their coagulation status. So in, in this case, so I, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Guys, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode in our heme emergencies portion of our hemonc series this time highlighting DIC as a diagnostic issue and how to work it up and how to treat it. So Dan, thanks for that awesome case and thanks for sharing that with us for sure. Dan, time. And I think that is all we got for, for now. So until next time, listeners, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.